Hello, and welcome to the Slate Wine Club. I'm Felix Salmon, and you may know me as the host of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. But I am also, as many Slate Money listeners will remember, a bit of a wine lover. And I like to drink wine, I like to talk about wine, I like to think about wine. And really, underneath everything, I like the storytelling of wine. I really think that wine is about stories and memory and experiences and the idea of transporting yourself to a different place. These are the things at the heart of the Slate Wine Club. It's not about, you know, tasting notes and tannins and malolactic fermentation and micro-oxygenation and that kind of thing. It's about place and people and stories and just getting to enjoy a variety of premium wines and learning about them from these expert winemakers, often who've been making wines not just themselves but in their families for hundreds of years. And these stories really help me enjoy wine. They'll help you enjoy wine. But before we talk to today's winemaker, you probably want to know why you should join the club and how to become a member of it. So as a Slate Wine Club member, you will get expertly curated selections of premium wines made by some of the world's best winemakers. Each shipment includes three bottles of unique high-quality wines delivered right to your door. And joining is easy. Just text SLATE to 878-77-SLATE. That's S-L-A-T-E to 878-777-5283. Once you receive your wines, you'll be able to sip each one while listening to an interview with the talented winemaker who crafted it. And that's exactly what we're doing today with Alex McGregor. Alex is the kind of guy that you call when you want to do something maybe a little bit new or not in vogue, like radical field blends. A field blend is basically where you just take all of the grapes in the field and put them all together no matter what they are. And it can be spectacular because it's really close to nature. It's in many ways the purest expression of terroir. So John Fetzer hired Alex, gave him a proper budget, lots of independence, and gave him time to experiment. And 20 years later, here we are with Saracena, a benchmark in Mendocino, which is a very up-and-coming part of Northern California wine country. Alex McGregor, welcome. Thank you. Tell me about Saracena. Where is it? Saracena is in Hopland, California, which is in the heart of Mendocino County. We're about 25 miles from the coast as the crow flies. Tell me about the climate. Is it lots of fog and winds and what's it called? Temperature gradients? The climate is changing, unfortunately, or fortunately, so our fog influence is diminishing every year, and we do get a high and low shift of up to 50 degrees a day. For example, we had 90 during the day last week and 40 nighttime temperatures, which is fairly unique. Wow. What does that do to the vines? There's a story that's definitely a story from California winemakers about warm days and cool evenings retaining natural acidity, and it, it has legitimacy in our county. We cool off quickly and to an extreme. And so with vineyards like the one I just described to you, Lolonus, which is the oldest Sauvignon Blanc in the country, dry farmed, had pruned. Legitimately, these cool temperatures help it retain its acidity almost to a fault where the wines are verging on European with their acid levels, which is my preference. <laughs> verging on the European, heaven forfend. Heaven forbid. And dry farmed means you don't irrigate it. You just leave these poor struggling vines to fend for themselves. Exactly. It's tough love. Another story that I think has 
legitimacy with older vine material like this vineyard in particular, they do struggle, but you end up with, needless to say, much, much lower yields than a modern commercial Sauvignon Blanc vineyard. And it's just like a tomato vine. The fewer tomatoes on it, the sweeter and tastier and juicier they are. It's the same thing applies to grapevines. Is that true for all of your wines or just your old vine Sauvignon Blanc? No, we're currently replanting vineyards at the property. The vineyards changed ownership within the last two years. When the owner changes, like how much of a difference does that make? In this case, a massively positive one. He's passionate. He sees the potential in the property, sees the potential in Mendocino County, which is rustic, would be the sexy terminology for it. <laughs> we're Napa Valley 25 years ago. We're still relatively rural and we're not deluged with traffic, congestion, millions of people. You're not stepping back in time, but there's a more authentic experience. It's a county that's full of iconoclasts, i.e. cantankerous fourth-generation farmers that are fun to hang out with. And when I've taken people to some of the vineyards that we source fruit from that are not used to standing in, say, vines that are 75 years old, it's magical. And their eyes light up. And they all say the same thing. I would love to make wine out of a vineyard like this. And that's part of the appeal. We're lucky there's a surfeit of those vineyards in this county still. I have a bottle here. It says Old Soul, Vintage 2018. This is a field blend, right? You just pick all of the wine in the field and it's a bunch of different grapes? Yes, by design and not by design. There's some field blend components in it. There are some single varietal vineyards in it. There's some old vine Zinfandel. There's old vine Petite Syrah. There's younger Malbec in it. There's some ancient vine, Carignan, and that Carignan vineyard is a field blend of Carignan, Grenache. There's one grape variety that we are not sure what it is. A mix of whites interplanted amongst the reds, about 250 French Columbard vines. It's quite unique. You mentioned something interesting there. There's old vines and then there's ancient vines. What's the difference between an old vine and an ancient vine? <laughs> nothing, probably. <laughs> Semantics, my language, I would say nothing at all. I like ancient. Ancient is good. So how many fields does this wine come from in total? Off the property here, there are five different blocks that it comes off of, and then a vineyard called Casa Verde, greenhouse, not too clever, but it says what it is, an abandoned greenhouse. <laughs> I'm going to say 10, 10 to 12 different blocks. Wow. And so that's where you come in, right? You're choosing the blocks, you're throwing them all together, you're picking which fields, which blends, and you're trying to create something magical at the end of it. Tell me, what's the vision for this? Sophisticated peasant wine is the vision for it. <laughs> I'd like it to be not incredibly polished and sophisticated at the same time and also to evoke some of these old vines and to make you want to have a second glass or split a bottle at lunch with your best friend. Okay, so I'm going to open this guy up. You have a cork. Do you have an opinion on closures? I do. Cork is certainly the most sustainable. That's important. And it's traditional. I was a sommelier. I love popping corks. I love that sound. That's a good sound. Yep. All right, let's see how sophisticatedly peasant this is. I'm diving in over here as well. You should. Now, okay, so this to me, this absolutely smells of California. This is unmistakably Californian wine, and I haven't even tasted it yet. Because it's warm? It's warmth, and it just, I poured it into the glass, and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember sitting out on the porch in Napa like 15 years ago. You know how smell memory lasts much longer than like any other memory, and it just takes you straight back? It does for me. And I guess it's also the Zinfandel, which I honestly don't know if I ever drink Zinfandel from anywhere other than California. So what am I looking for in this wine once I start tasting it? Sunshine. California sun. There you go. Black Some fruits. tannins. Some tannin. And so the tannin is intentional. As I said, 
sophisticated and peasant at the same time. I think tannin is important in one. We're drifting away from tannin in red wine making generally, and I think it's a mistake. It's just because of the way this wine, for example, would work with the lunch that we're going to share. What am I eating with this wine? Something with mushrooms, something with probably animal protein, certainly not barbecue. That's thrown out too often. It could be, but I see um, roasts. Maybe a beef wellington. A beef wellington would be delicious with that wine. Yes, I love beef wellington. (laughs) It's a lot of work, but if you get someone else to make it for you, it's awesome. Agreed. Just looking at the back of the bottle here, it says 14.7%. This is a a pretty big one, alcohol-wise. It's not silly ripe, but the core of it is Infandel, and that's Infandel in California. You can tame the beast to some extent, but <laughs> picking Zinfandels to come in at mid-13s, you're not going to get that core iron zinny fruit that you get when you're picking up more potential alcohols like 14.5, 14.6. So I make no apologies for it. Our Sauvignon Blanc is 13.1. Our Rosé is 12.5. So it's representative of the wine. I am intentionally trying to lower our alcohol content across the board with all of our wines and have been doing so for the last 10 years. But the core of this wine with Zinfandel has got to be in that sort of sweet spot. How do you do that? Because I mean, ultimately, it's those 90 degrees days, right? They just get that fruit really ripe and that sugar turns to alcohol. A lot of the vineyards that I source from are not on wires or trellises. The canopy flops over. And so a lot of that fruit is protected. Most of the Zinfandel that we grow is head pruned, which means that the fruit never sees the sun. The sexy winemaking term is dappled light. That and intentionally picking it perhaps slightly lower sugars, sourcing out raisins. So when we pick Zinfandel in particular, we run it over an antique sorting table. And when I can pull a judicious amount of raisins off of clusters to keep the sugars moderate. So the tannins, I guess, is the peasant bit? Yeah, Tannin, and there's also some pretty pronounced acidity in it. It's not a low acid red wine. You say Californian, but I think texturally you're drifting more into Italy. Tell me about acidity in red wine. What does it do to the wine? It pops more and it causes the wine to linger more in your mouth. It makes you want to go back and have a second sip, especially if you're having it with a meal. You say that it's going out of favor. Why would people not want acidity in their wines? Well, not just acidity, but tannin as well. There was a trend to make wines very rich and very ripe and very soft and sometimes a little bit sweet. And there's a shift back towards acidity and tannin being okay in wine. A lot of that's happening in your neck of the woods in Brooklyn, New York City, thanks to a lot of great wine bars and sommeliers that are bringing back more traditional producers, lots of interesting wines from all over Italy, southern France, that aren't afraid to not be incredibly soft and rich and voluptuous and are remarkable because of it. So something a little bit rough, a little bit earthy, a little bit like get your feet dirty. A little bit, yeah. Let me ask you three questions. Number one, is white burgundy the greatest wine in the world, yes or no? No. (laughs) It took a while to to, to come up with that one. I've had, like you have had, many, many, many great white burgundies. And I worked with David Ramey for the first eight years of the project here at Saracena. And he was sort of the progenitor of bringing white burgundy technique to California with barrel-fermented Unbelievably delicious Chardonnays. And I've tasted a lot of great white burgundy with David and with some other associates and friends. So there have been some real epiphanies, but there are so many other regions that are on the same level, I would say. So it's hard to pick one region. Are there any other regions on the same level that are in the New World? Yeah, Mendocino County. Mendocino County. There you go. (laughs) Represent. Next question Do you have a dog who helps make this wine? 
a dog. I do not have a dog. We have alpacas. You have alpacas? Yes, and the male is called Music Man, and I've actually stuck a glass in front of his face to see what would happen, and it's been radio silence so far. A lot of snot, but... <laughs> Not a whole lot of help. I've never had a wine made with the help of an alpaca. So I'm not going to thank Music Man for this wine because clearly he had absolutely nothing to do with it except for looking at it through through like doleful eyes. And finally, which podcast should I be listening to when I drink this wine? I'd say your own. (laughs) Wow. Little self reflection. Yeah. And just going, oh my God, that was such a stupid thing to say. Did I say that? Are you one of those people who's okay listening to the sound of your own voice? It doesn't bother you. I used to dislike it immensely, and I have gotten used to it. I think this is it. This is my way of learning to come to terms with my own voice, is to drink Old Soul, Mendocino County, red wine blend from Saracena Vineyards while listening to my own podcast. And if I do that for long enough, I will start associating the sound of my own voice with like delicious, slightly rustic Italianate red wine from Mendocino County. And that will be a lovely connection right there. It couldn't hurt. So thank you again to Alex McGregor for joining us today and for telling us all about his 2018 Old Soul. If you're not a member of the Slate Wine Club already, joining is easy. Text SLATE to 878-777-5283 to set up your first shipment, and you'll be well on your way to enjoying premium wines, not to mention developing a better appreciation for the expert winemakers who fill our glasses. 